0: So Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Follow along with me. I'm reading from the ESV. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You're the Christ, Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Last week, um, John David was here and he preached the text before this. And he mentioned the, some of the errors of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And how they just continued to miss what Jesus was saying. Where he was really getting at. See, they had this pretense, this facade of wanting to know the truth. They would say, "What is truth? What is the truth? Tell us." But if it wasn't the truth that they wanted, they would find, as Mike Caps pointed out a couple weeks ago, they would find a loophole. Right? Not unlike many of us today. Um, but they just continued to try to get Jesus to fall into their trap of legalism and tradition, but Jesus would have none of it. He shut it down every time, right away. he repeatedly spoke out against the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and that 's what we talked about last week. So what is and, and John David mentioned this, what is the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? False teaching. I mean, Jesus says it really plainly. Look back at verse 12. He wasn't telling them about the leaven of bread, but of the teachings, the false teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus warned against the dangers of man-made traditions that had nothing to do with the Bible, because that's what they were guilty of: stacking rule upon rule upon rule that really no one could keep including themselves. And I wanted to just reflect on that just a moment before we look at the text today and to think about why this is the case. And it, it's true, I think, that human beings like rules. Humans like rules. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, yeah, right, we don't like rules. We like freedom. We like freedom from rules. But in reality, I think we like rules, and I'll give you a couple of reasons why I think so. I think we like rules because when we keep them better than other humans, we we think that we're better than them and that we're better than we really are. We, We like rules because then we can stack ourselves up against other people. And it's in those moments when, if you're like me, I puff out my chest in pride, you know, I'm better than all of you sinners because I've kept the rules better than any of you. Pride wells up within us. When I spend the bulk of my time making sure that I'm following the rules better than you are, guess what I've done? I've, I've elevated you to the place of God in my life. Because now I care more about what you think about me than what God thinks about me. You have become my standard for whether or not I'm a good Christian or a bad Christian. You see how that works? It's a subtle thing that we slip into, but when we put it this way, when when we say it this way and expose it, we all sit here saying, well, of course that's not right. We shouldn't compare ourselves to other Christians. We should only compare ourselves to the standard of Jesus. And that's correct. You're right. But we can see it clearly on a Sunday morning. But then so many of us go and live ruled by the kind of flawed theology that the Pharisees and the Sadducees did. Because we compare ourselves to the other people that don't follow the rules as well as we do. And pride wells up. And if we don't fall into that trap of elevating Uh, another person to the place of God, we tend to elevate the rules themselves. The Pharisees were rebuked hard on this by Jesus. Back in chapter 15, he called them, I don't know if you remember this, Jesus was very rude, and he called them hypocrites. He called them blind guides. In chapter 15 he says, they honor me with their lips, but what's, what was far from him? Their hearts. He says, "Their hearts are far from me." This tells us this, actually, in my opinion, disturbing truth: that it is possible to have the outward appearance that we want to follow God, that we have godliness, and yet our hearts be far from Him. That disturbs me for myself and for my brothers and sisters in Christ. And this brings me to another reason why I think humans like rules, is that is because simply following the rules is really only a surface obedience that doesn't require a real and difficult heart change. We like to follow the rules because we can just check it off the list. Yep, did that today, didn't do that, I'm better than all of these people. We like to do this. Now, if you're a parent, you know immediately what I'm talking about. Okay? Think about the last time you gave your kid a chore. Okay? Uh, let's say you gave your kid the chore. Well, I'll just use my kids. I'll pick on them for a moment. We have chickens at our house. And it's part of their daily, and, uh, you know, bi-daily r- routine to go and to check the chickens, to get the eggs, make sure they have enough food and water. Sometimes we'll let them out to free range and that sort of a thing, and that's their job. And, you know, they've gotten pretty good at it, and without complaining at this point. But when we first started this process, it wasn't so. So if you've given your kids a chore, um, perhaps you understand this process. Emily, uh, anyway, it's time to go uh, scoop out the chicken coop. No, I'm just kidding. I, I do that. He doesn't have to do that. Um, but it, I said, Emily, anyway, it's time to go feed the chickens. Oh, it's hot. I can't carry the feed bucket. I don't want to. Any number of reasons come up. Now, you guys understand this. Um, eventually, because I'm the authority. Uh, I'll get him to do what I want him to do, right? (laughs) One way or another, he's going to feed those chickens. But it may be through clenched teeth. Fine, Dad. Okay. So my question is, is that real obedience? Is that the kind of obedience that I want from my kids? Is that the kind of obedience that you want from your kids? And more importantly, is that the kind of obedience that we think a father desires from his children. I can eventually get my kids to follow my rules, but are they really walking in obedience when it's through clenched teeth, when it's through stiffened necks, when it's with angry eyes? Is that really obedience? Heart change, I believe, can and will happen when, when we see walking in obedience as a joy. I don't think it can ever be a joy unless our relationship with Jesus is deeper than just following a bunch of rules. Walking in obedience will not be a joy until we see our relationship with Jesus as more than just obeying a bunch of rules. I, just a a personal kind of application here, I lived in this kind of place of darkness for almost two decades, influenced by wrong theology in a Catholic church and unbalanced teaching of the character of God in a Baptist church. Because for almost 20 years, I thought God's love towards me was entirely dependent on my performance. And that is a complete and flat-out lie. It's not. And we see this time and time again in Scripture. And through flawed but faithful men preaching the truth from the pulpit of Ramsey Creek Baptist Church, I've come to understand this truth. If God has set His affection on you and saved you, you are forever washed by His blood, sealed by His Spirit, and have a place in His family. Period. If you're in Christ, He loves you like He loves His Son. Praise God for that. And you know, even when you fail to follow Him like you think you should, His love for you does not change. It hasn't dipped just a little. hasn't decreased at all because God is faithful even when you're not. God is faithful even when I'm not faithful to Him. And Paul teaches us that where sin abounds... Grace superabounds; It abounds all the more. It goes further and deeper than our sin. His mercies are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. They don't come to an end. But let me be clear. Abusing the grace of God is equally as wrong as thinking His love for you is based on your performance. Because this can happen. Are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? Well, can you keep on sinning because you know God's grace will cover it? You guys have heard this line of reasoning before. You may have had this line of reasoning before. And it goes like this. Well, I know I really shouldn't do that. But God is love. God forgives. So He'll forgive me even if I go and do that thing that I know is wrong. It'll be fine. The Apostle Paul tackles this question, this heavy question in Romans chapter 6. And he reminds Christians that we have been buried with Christ in baptism, died to our sin, old way of life, and share in his death. But just as Christ was raised, so we have been raised as God's people to newness of life, not the same as it once was. That's the purpose of being raised with Christ. Newness of life. We will, capital W-I-L, we will be changed by the grace of God. By the relentless love of God. It will impact us. Now, that's going to look different for each one of us, and it's going to happen at different speeds, but the truth remains, God's grace will change you. I am a product of the alternative Christian music scene of the 90s and 2000s, and there is a song by the pop-punk band named Philmont that has these lyrics to the chorus. There's got to be a difference. It's got to be significant. If you're really inside changing my life, you would shine. You would be evident if there's a difference, and I believe that's true. True. Your life will be marked by the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of death any longer, if you're a Christian. There will be a difference. It will be significant. Again, just to be clear, the rules that I'm talking about, that every human being likes, the rules, some of those are the Ten Commandments, some of those are the ones that Jesus spells out in the Golden Rule, and loving your neighbor, and loving the Lord your God, those rules aren't the problem. Our hearts are. Okay? Jesus doesn't come to do away with the rules. He comes to fulfill the law. Okay? So the rules aren't the problem. Our hearts are. Our hearts must continually and regularly be made alive and sustained by the Creator of them. The Creator of our hearts has to do it. The rules simply reveal our desperate need for a Savior and our constant need to be revived. The rules push us down to our knees at the feet of the cross. That's what they do. That's why we're given them, to show us our need for a Savior, to push us to our knees at the foot of the cross. And praise God, He still rescues stubborn self-reliant sinners today. And if that were not the case, this room would be empty. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone, regardless of your background, regardless of your theology, regardless of what you have done in your life, if you call on the name of the Lord in repentance and faith, He will save you. There is no doubt in Scripture. There is no doubt in God's mind. There is no doubt in my mind he will save you. If you call on the Lord, if you cry out to him, you will be saved. But we still, we, we tend to like the rules. The disciples were tempted by this same thing, this same ungodly trap. And were not for the kindness of their Savior, they would have missed it just like the rule-following religious leaders of the day. And like so many do today. They miss it. John David last week challenged us to remember God's enduring faithfulness and to stop looking for a future sign. Right? He said Jesus says an adulterous generation looks for that kind of a thing. An evil generation looks for that kind of a thing. Instead, Jesus' words and work both give evidence to who he is. And that's why we should believe. And Jesus just keeps building on that premise here in Matthew chapter 16 that we've read so far. I look back at the text, if you would with me. And skip ahead just a moment to verse 18. There's a word used here that hasn't been used before in Scripture. It's helpful to point it out. I will build my church, Jesus says. So he says He's going to build His church. It's the first time this is used, and Jesus Himself says it. Uh, our ears should perk up. We should pay attention. Um, several, I think it's been several years ago, the nature of the church, you started us off that series by talking a couple of sermons about the church. So I'm not going to rehash all of that. Um, but it's important to pay attention when something new is introduced and Jesus does that. And right after... Jesus finished everyone, finished telling everyone to beware of the leaven and false teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He asks His disciples this seemingly very innocent question. He says, who do people say that I am? You have heard this before. Jesus asks His disciples this. He's saying, what are people saying about me? The disciples list everything that they've heard so far. They say, well, some people say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Remember, that was Herod. Herod fell into that. He thought John the Baptist reincarnated and it freaked him out. Um, So they said, John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Maybe Elijah, maybe Jeremiah, maybe another one of the prophets. So there's some inconsistency on the reports of who, what people think about Jesus. Then Jesus does, I don't know if the disciples were expecting this or what. if this caught them off guard or not, but he turns that question on them. Well, who do you say that I am? Good boy. The the light is turned to their own hearts, and now they've got an answer. Um, Seemingly, though, without missing a beat, Peter speaks up. Uh, And this is normal Peter. You know, get out of the boat first, kind of guy. This is and this is okay. Um, but he jumps up and speaks for the whole group. And it makes sense that he does it because uh the 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 word you when Jesus says, Who do you say that I am is a plural word, so he's asking everyone there, all the disciples, who do you guys say that I am? And Peter speaks up and he says the first answer. Now this is one of the greatest declarations about who Jesus is of all time. Period. He says, you're the Christ, Son of the living God. Now for us, with the full narrative of Scripture open to us in 2018, this may not seem like such a big deal. But in that time, this was a big deal. Now this is kind of only the second time that the disciples have really even thought through this. Um, They've had a front row seat to so many miracles, to so many wonderful healings, and really this is like the only the second time where they've equated Jesus with the Messiah, the Son of God. The other time was back after he calmed the storm in chapter 14, and it says that that they, they said, truly you are the Son of God. Their eyes are beginning to open. To this truth. And even if no one else does, Peter sees Jesus as different from every other crowd of Jews. Right, A couple weeks ago, Jason was talking about the feeding of the 4,000 and how Christ came down on the Gentile side. And that's important to our understanding of the Gospel and how it goes out and what this feeding meant. And We found out there that the Gentiles viewed Jesus differently. So if you remember, even before that, the Jews saw Jesus multiply these fish and the loaves, and then he fed the 5,000, and what was their inclination? Oh, I see. So, we can beat Rome now, because we've got a warrior king who can multiply bread. They can't cut off our supply lines and starve us out, because we've got a guy who can just make bread appear. We're gonna win. Uh, their idea was military or something a little more simple, just filling their own bellies. I think I, I called their view of Jesus the cosmic vending machine. That's what they viewed him as. It was, that's the simplistic idea of what it was. But the Gentiles and Peter are picking up a different idea, a different view of who Jesus is. And Peter makes it really clear it may not have sunk in as quickly as we would have thought it should, but Peter gets it right. And even in that, even though Peter has correctly identified Jesus, it's not really even something that he can take the credit for, can he? (laughs) So kids, listen up. This is, in answer to your question, just pay attention here, Jesus Answers Peter's correct statement with one of his own and he says, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. This shows us that truth about Jesus never comes from human invention. It always and only comes from divine revelation. What I mean is that the grace of God is the only way that anyone will ever see Jesus for who He really is. God does it. Divine revelation. God opens the eyes. John 6:44 says, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him." Guys, left to ourselves, every one of us is a Pharisee or a Sadducee. Every one of us would be blind and lovers of darkness. But God, rich in mercy has opened our eyes to be able to see Christ for who He really is, to believe Him and to confess Him the same way that Peter does here, Christ, the Son of the living God. Lots of people, I'm sure, in that day would have said that they believed in Jesus. Don't you think? Uh, I mean, he was a real guy that they could see with their eyes. It would be kind of silly and foolish not to believe in Him. But lots of people today say they believe in Jesus too. And their view of Jesus is just as skewed as the Jews in this time. So the real question is, not necessarily do you even believe in Jesus, but who exactly is the Jesus that you say you believe in? Who is He? How you answer that question determines everything about how you follow Him. How you answer who Jesus really is determines everything about how you follow Him. We saw what the Jews believed about Jesus. They hoped He'd be a warrior who would deliver them from Rome, or just a miracle worker who could fill their bellies with food. And because this is what they believed about Him, the vast majority never followed Him the way He intended. They never understood Him for who He really is. But if you know Jesus for who He really is, the Son of God, the Rescuer, you will follow Him as the disciples did, with their whole lives. The Jesus they gave up their lives for wasn't just a good teacher, guys. He wasn't just a nice guy. He wasn't even a social justice guru. He was the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of the Living God. Jesus makes a couple statements here in verses 18 through 20 that have long been discussed and debated. Um, my intent is not to to climb in the ring and start duking it out about all of what that means today, but I do hope to give a little bit of um, clarity and pastoral help regarding two two big things: number one being what is the rock of the church that Jesus refers to here, and secondly, what are these keys of the kingdom or the the binding and loosing idea, okay? We'll start with the rock of the church. What is the rock that the church is built on? Well, if you look at the text, which is always a good idea, this comes in when Jesus answers Peter's declaration of him. He says, My Father in heaven has revealed this to you. Verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not, prevail against it. So what, what is the rock that the church is built on? Is it Peter? Is it the apostles? Is it Peter's confession of Jesus being God's son? Is it the gospel itself? Yes. It's all of those things to an extent. But this tends to be a bit confusing Because different New Testament authors use use different metaphors when describing the church. Specifically, Paul and Peter. So, in 1 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul calls Jesus the foundation. In 1 Corinthians 10, he calls Jesus the rock. In Ephesians chapter 2, Jesus is the cornerstone. But then he also, in Ephesians 2 refers to the apostles and the prophets as the foundation of the church. Paul refers to himself also as a skilled master builder, not a Lego master builder, um, as a skilled master builder in relation to the church in 1 Corinthians 3. So we've got New Testament authors using different metaphors and terminology regarding this, and so it's, it's been misunderstood and misconstrued over the years. So, as good students of the Bible, we should understand the use of rock in light of the context of the verses surrounding it. Another layer of confusion comes when we find out that Peter's name means rock or stone. And so, there appears to be almost a play on words here. But I want to point out that it's immediately after Peter's true confession that Jesus speaks of this church. And he says he's building it upon Peter and the confession, his confession of who Christ is. So based on the order and the context here, I think we should understand it this way. The rock of the church is the people of God proclaiming the gospel of Christ. That is the rock that the church is built on. The people of God proclaiming the gospel of Christ. That's what Peter was doing. A person of God Proclaiming the gospel that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Living God. And I think that's how we need to understand this text. Now, don't get me wrong, Peter was hugely instrumental in the beginning of the early church in Acts 2 through 1 through 12. He was huge in this. The first sermon that he preached, through thousand people were saved. Praise God for that. But Paul says in Ephesians 2. Verse 20, that Peter wasn't alone as the rock. The church is built on the foundation of all the apostles, not just Peter. Now think, too, about what's coming next week. Jason's going to be preaching. Um, for some reason, Peter thinks it wise to rebuke the Son of the living God for saying he is going to suffer and die. And Jesus has some interesting words for Peter. But remember also in Galatians chapter 2, Paul opposed Peter to his face because Peter wasn't living consistent with the gospel in front of certain people. I'm not trying to disparage Peter in the least bit. Peter was absolutely used by God as a mighty force for the spread of the gospel and relating his divine words in scripture to us. But I think it's wrong and it's harmful to teach that Peter was the infallible first pope and that God's revelation is passed down through that succession. It's harmful to have that view. These verses do not teach us that Peter was given special authority in that way. And they certainly don't teach that he should be exalted in a place of worship, as some some places are taught. This text is not about a supreme pope. It's about a sovereign Savior. The The papal succession, it's not easy to say, the papal succession is not what Jesus emphasizes in his response to Peter. Jesus was pointing out his divinely inspired declaration of who Jesus really was. That's the emphasis. It's the church's proclamation of Christ that is primary. Then and now. Wherever the gospel is preached, that's where the church is being built. In America, in Africa, in Australia, in Europe, if the gospel is preached, the church is being built. You and I and every other Christian on this planet have a part in that, not just specific spiritual leaders. This text is not about an infallible pope. It's about an invincible mission the Pope does not speak new revelation that carries the weight of Christ's authority. The church, instead, the church proclaims an old revelation, the revelation of God saving sinners through Christ, period. That's the revelation that the church concerns itself with. That's the comment that Jesus is reinforcing in this text. Now, verse 18 adds on, says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Guys, as the church proclaims the gospel of Christ, Jesus says that the forces of hell, Hades, will not be able to overpower it. The forces of Hades, the gates of hell, these are terms that are really um, a, a Jewish idiom that means the powers of death. And so what this means is... Death cannot stop the Messiah. Like Jonah from the fish, Christ would come back in three days alive. He would have victory over the grave. But it's not only Christ who won't be stopped. Death will not stop His messengers. It can't. I want to read a a quote to you. that I found helpful and informative here. Death will not stop His messengers. Nothing can altogether overthrow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, burned, but the true church is never altogether extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The Pharaohs, the Herods, the Neroes have all labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands and then pass away and go to their own place. But the true church outlives them all and sees them bury each in his turn. The church... I love the way that this is put. The church... Is an anvil that has broken many a hammer in this world, and will break many a hammer still. The church is a bush which is often burning and yet is not consumed. Death will not stop this Messiah, and death cannot stop his messengers. How do we know? How do we know this? How do we know that death death won't stop Christ's messengers? It's because Jesus gives His authority to the church. How do we know that He gives His authority to the church? Well, let's look back at the text for context. Verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is where we get into the second thing I wanted to... Reference today, the ideas of the keys of the kingdom, the binding and loosing that has been misunderstood and misapplied. This passage isn't about Christians walking around and binding this and loosing that for whatever their whims might be that day. Jesus is not teaching that you can claim whatever you wish and ignore every other scripture that reminds Christians that you're going to suffer and endure difficulty in this life following Him. This is saying that when Peter or any other Christian proclaims the gospel, it's done under the authority of Jesus and His authority to save sinners and to judge sinners. Now, we would agree, I would hope, that Jesus absolutely has that authority, right? He has the authority to save or judge sinners. Jesus' authority to save means to the church, to those who He has saved, that we can go out and say to the world, If you turn from your sin and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you will be free from sin forever. That's the guarantee that's based on the authority of Jesus and His Word. So, many women, when we go out and we proclaim the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is, as Peter did, when we go out and say, There's a Savior who loves you, if you would turn and trust Him, That's how we loose the chains of bondage of sin when we preach that message. We've loosed the chains of sin by proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is. On the flip side, Christians also have the authority through Christ to say, if you do not turn from your sin and trust Jesus as Savior and Lord, you're bound instead to your sin and its payment for all eternity in hell. In this way, we bind people To the understanding that by rejecting the Savior, they are chained to their sin forever in hell. This is not because we as messengers are anything special or have any authority on our own. It's only because the authority of Christ has been given to the church to proclaim this message. And that's how we bind and loose things. Whatever we bind on earth, we bind in heaven. And vice versa is what this verse says. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. When we go and preach the truth of who Jesus is, as Peter did, we bind and loose people in that way. Jesus is going to kind of flesh the idea of authority given to the church more in chapter 18 when he gets into church discipline. And we'll address that at that time. Now, I know you're sitting there and you're probably thinking, okay, I I think I understand better... Who the rock is, or what the rock is that the church is built on? It's it's not Peter specifically. It's not the papal succession. Um, I think I understand better what binding and loosing idea is. It's you know it's Christians speaking the truth of who Jesus is to the world, and that He has the right to judge or to save sinners. But what does this mean for me? Well, first off, if nothing else, at the very least, I think this should remind us and show us that being a part of the church is not like joining a YMCA. It's not like buying a membership at a golf course. It is so much more. It is an extremely important decision. It has eternal ramifications. And these ramifications are not only for you being a part of the church, but also for what we do as a church. We speak with the authority of Christ. So here's what I want us to think through as we wrap it up. When you share the truth of the gospel with the lost, you share it with the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. What a ministry you have. We don't sit under preachers, under popes, under priests, and let them do all the work. You study the scripture, you seek the lost, I'll take it all in. We don't do that. Instead, you are a priest. You are a messenger. You have the authority and power of Christ. Not to go and to claim and do whatever you want, but to preach the gospel, the truth of who he is to a dying world. Because someone has done it to you. Someone has preached that message to you. What a ministry you have to go and to share this truth with others. So I'm going to ask you the same question that Jesus asked the disciples. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he a, historic, is he a historical figure? Is he a guy who pushed social justice agendas? Is is He a guy who taught a lot of good things? Or is He the Messiah? Is He the Savior? Because if He's a Savior, that demands a response from me and you. God is sovereign over all, including salvation, but He demands a response from you and me. Is He your Savior? Have you recognized your need to be freed from your bonds of sin and shame? You won't come unless you do. If you think you're good enough that you can check off all those rules that you're living by and you'll get to heaven one day and your good deeds will outweigh your bads, you're mistaken. That's a trap set by legalistic people that won't work. The Bible does not teach that. It teaches that if you call out to the Lord, repent from your sin, you will be saved. And that's still the way it happens today. Have you recognized your need for Him or are you still keeping Him at arm's reach for some reason? Because I can't look into your heart. I don't know where you are with Christ. But I remind us of Jesus' words Himself that He spoke just a few chapters ago. He said, Come to Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that's the joy we have as Christ's followers. Our way will be marked by suffering. The hammer comes down and it seems to destroy. But the church is never completely cast out. The church is never forsaken. And neither are you as a part of it. Submit to Christ and be freed today. Let's pray. Oh God. Help us not to cling to rules. Help us not to cling to our own wrong ideas of who you really are. Our world has all kinds of things that would take us away from you, that would cause us to question who you really are. And what we read in your word, we sometimes doubt. And so, Lord, I I pray for grace today. I pray for mercy. We know, we've mentioned before, that Your faithfulness never ends. So I pray as, as as our own sin is uncovered and unearthed, our own doubts and failures to trust are brought to light, God, I pray that You would expose them with the truth of the Gospel and that the message of salvation and love would conquer us. Lord, I pray that we would submit to your authority. And when we do, we speak truth of you about who you are, and we do it with your power in a way that wins souls, not for arrogance, but for your glory, Lord. I pray that our church is marked by this concept and this mindset today. Lord, I pray that you'd have mercy on us and break our hearts where we need it. But don't just break them down, Lord. Build us up with the reality of Your Word and with the meat, with the truth of who You are. We thank You, Jesus, for Your love today for us sinners. It's in Your name we pray. Amen.